Our sermon this morning is entitled, The Supremacy of Christ and the Response That It Elicits. We're going to be working from Luke chapter 20, verses 41 to 47. So turn there in your Bibles if you have them. Prepare to follow along on the screen if you don't, or grab a pew Bible, even better. I always like to just have a Bible in front of me. I, it's, I find it just helpful. Uh, it kind of triggers my brain to remember things a little better. Uh, if you're using a pew Bible, you can find Luke chapter 20 on page 826. And you can find the specific verses 41 to 47 on page 827. So grab a pew Bible, turn there, flip in your, on your phone, watch on the screen, any number of ways you can, you can do it. Uh, we've been out of the Gospel of Luke for uh, about a month now. We had, we had some, some other folks uh, come in and preach. We did a couple of sermons on a couple of different psalms. And so now we're going to jump back in and spend a few weeks uh, in the Gospel of Luke. We've been working through it for a while. The last time we were in the Gospel of Luke, we looked at... Um, kind of a, a, a interesting or kind of a, a weird, uh, you know, it was an interaction between Jesus and the Sadducees, and they came up to him with, him with this hypothetical question about, um, you know, what if there was a, a woman and she married, you know, uh, seven different guys, and then they all died, and she married these other guys, like, who, who would she be married to in the resurrection? And they were kind of trying to spark a debate about the resurrection, Jesus engaged with them and that kind of thing. And one of the applications we took away from it was the importance of theology, like why theology matters, why this like random question about something that is maybe on the surface, not maybe we wouldn't think is super important to everyday life, but we thought, you know, theology matters, doctrine matters, what you believe about God, what you think about God, these things matter, right? It's not just the actions that we take, um, you know, or how we behave that matters. It's how, it's what we believe that what we believe is what's right and true. And, uh, that kind of application that we looked at in the previous passage is kind of on display in this passage here, because Jesus really dives into what on the surface seems like some, uh, kind of in the weeds or granular theological uh, topics, but he takes it very seriously and like doesn't sleep on it and doesn't think that it's, you know, something that you can dismiss or overlook. So Jesus is going to talk today about Christology, the doctrine of the person of Christ and who Jesus is. Um, and, and he's going to kind of walk through uh, what, you know, what a Christian should believe about Jesus. And then in the, in the next passage, like in, in verses 45 and following, we're going to see why that matters, how what we believe about Jesus affects our lives and it affects how we uh, interact with and relate to God and it affects how we uh, interact with and relate to our, our neighbors. And so we're going to look today at Christology and we're going to look at how that should come to bear on our lives. So I'm going to read uh, Luke 20, verses 41 to 47, then pray, and then we'll get to work. It says, But he said to them, How can they say that the Christ is David's son? For David himself says in the book of Psalms, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. David thus calls him Lord, so how is he his son? And in hearing all of, in the hearing all of all of the people, he said to the disciples, beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and they love greetings in the marketplaces and the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. They will receive the greater judgment. 
a greater condemnation. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning. We, at, we invite you here into this room with us. Lord, we pray that you would meet us here. We pray that you would gather with us, right? Uh, two or three or more uh, of us are gathered together, and so we invite you to be here with us, to speak to us. Lord Jesus, apart from your Spirit, apart from Him moving in our hearts, convicting us of sin and assuring us of your grace, apart from that, uh, I'm just a, a, a guy, a dude just saying empty words that will fall flat. So we ask your Holy Spirit to do a mighty, powerful, supernatural, miraculous work in our hearts today. We ask you, Lord, to grow us and sanctify us and conform us to the image of Jesus. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. All right, verse 41. How can they say that the Christ is David's son? This is the question that Jesus asks to uh, these religious leaders that he is, uh, is near. And he's referring to this like ongoing theological debate that kind of happened and took place in a lot of different uh, circles about the Messiah and who he is and what he does and, and what his status is, where the Messiah ranks uh, you know, in comparison to everyone else. The word Christ that he mentions here is the, uh, the same, uh, it's the word in Greek, uh, that for the word Messiah in, in Hebrew. They're the same thing. So when you, when you refer to the Christ, you're, you're referring to the Messiah. Those are kind of the same thing. So Jesus is basically saying, uh, how can people say that, that the Messiah is David's son? We see in Matthew 22, a parallel passage of this, that that was a question that was kind of commonly asked, right? Frequently asked and thought about, right? Whose son is the, uh, the Messiah, the religious leaders uh, had kind of settled on this answer that the Messiah is, uh, is the son of, of David. But Jesus wants to dive in a little bit deeper into that, into that question. So again, uh, from Matthew 1.1 1, 1 here, it's worth noting from the outset that Jesus is the son of David. So this, this passage in Luke 20 is kind of uh, you know, peculiar or interesting because he seems to be arguing that he is not the son of David. Right? He's saying, how could, how could the Messiah be David's son, according to this passage from the Old Testament? But, you know, in, in the very first verse of the New Testament, right? Uh, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David. Case closed, right? All over the place throughout the, the New Testament, Jesus is referred to as the son of David. And never, not once, well, I mean, apart from here in Luke 20, but very rarely does he say, no, don't refer to, like, usually he embraces it. Yeah, by all means, call me the son of David, please uh, please do go right, go right ahead. So it's kind of a weird, weird tension. Is Jesus the son of David or is he not? If he is like Matthew one, one says, then in what sense is he the son of David? If he's not like Jesus seems to be arguing in Luke chapter 20, then in what sense is he not the son of David? So the answer, uh, the, the, the sense in which the answer is yes. The sense in which Jesus is the Messiah and the Messiah is the son of David uh, goes back to Jesus or goes back to God himself 
uh, speaking to David through the prophet Nathan in 2 Samuel chapter 7, which is kind of like the first mention of this coming son of David, this like anointed one, the Messiah, the son of David. So David in 2 Samuel chapter 7, he's built this fancy uh, palace and he's living in it, very lavish, very impressive. And uh, the temple has not yet been built. The, the, the worship of God is not happening in a, in a permanent structure called a temple. It's happening in a temporary, uh, you know, tent called a tabernacle. And he's convicted by it. He says, man, like I am, uh, you know, I'm, I'm, spent, I'm spending a lot of money and a lot of time, a lot of resources to make my house. I, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. And God responds... Uh, in 2 Samuel 7, he says, Would you build me a house to dwell in? David, I have not lived in... I don't, I don't know if you realize this, David. I don't live in a house. right? I've not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt. But I've been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. In all the places where we've moved, uh, uh, I've moved with all the people of Israel. Did I ever speak a word to any of the judges of Israel whom I commanded to shepherd my people, saying, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? Moreover, the Lord declares that you, to you that the Lord will make you a house, right? David, you're not going to build me a house. I'm going to build you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. You're going to have a son. There's going to be a son of David. And so maybe in the near, in the near term, this is referring to Solomon, David's son, but there's a, a different sense in which this is going to be fulfilled in the far term, right? Because I'm going to establish his kingdom. He will build a house for my name. Solomon did that. And I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Well, Solomon died. So that's probably, there's probably some like a, a near and a far term here where we're talking about Solomon, but also about someone else, another coming son of David that would come later. I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son and your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. So that text is kind of this foundational, pivotal moment in the old covenant where God says there will be another one like David. We see that with other guys as well, guys like Moses and Adam. You know, like there are there are these like you know kind of prophecies that say someone like you is coming, but he's going to be better. This is the one where God says to David, "Someone like you is coming, but he's going to be better. He's going to be the son of David, but he's also going to be the son of God. He's going to live forever. He's going to reign on his throne over his kingdom forever." So that's the son of David. And so the, the old covenant people kind of took all of these prophecies about the greater Adam and the, the greater Moses and the greater David. And they kind of bound them all up and synthesized them together into this idea of a Messiah who was to come. And so D Jesus, uh, you know, often when he's referred to as the son of David and he doesn't rebuke the person or he doesn't tell them, I'm not the son of David. What are you doing? What he's doing is he's saying, you're right to attribute that Messiahship to me, right? When, when Thomas, I mean, after Jesus' death and resurrection, when Thomas says, my Lord and my God, and, and Jesus affirms Thomas, he, what he, instead of rebuking him, he's basically saying, you're right to call me Lord and God. When people call him the son of David and he doesn't rebuke them, he's saying, you're right to call me the son of David. That's who I am. That's what I am. That's the office that I hold. I am the son of David. But, 
that's, if that's the one sense in which Jesus is and does you know, receive the title of the Son of David, then what's the other sense in which he's arguing that he is not the Son of David here in, in uh, Luke 20? Apparently the religious leaders had kind of other things that they would kind of import into this phrase, Son of David, other connotations and implications that they would say, when we say that the Messiah is the Son of David, we not only mean that he was the Davidic king that was promised to David in 2 Samuel 7, but we also mean these other things. Specifically having to do with honor and glory and authority and status. Right, so, so the son of David is the son of David in that he's the coming king like David who will one day come and occupy the throne and reign forever. But when we say he's the son of David, what we also mean is that the Messiah is lower than David. Right? David is, has this, this you know, he's in the pantheon. He's this exalted status, the greatest king that we've ever had. All of the other kings are measured against the, the gold standard that is David. David is the pinnacle of glory and power. No one is higher on the, the org chart than, than David. The Messiah must be beneath David, and David must be higher than the Messiah. That's what we, all, like, that's what we also mean by calling the Messiah the son of David. And that... Whereas the first sense of Jesus being the son of David, the uh, anointed one, the Messiah who is to come, that's true. Uh, This second sense that the Messiah is the son, the subjugated beneath lower status than David, the father, is not uh, true. There's a... uh, a, uh, Jerry and I love the, the musical Hamilton. We've watched it a handful of times since it... Was, was made available to watch. And uh, there's a scene where George Washington is talking to Alexander Hamilton. It's like kind of in the middle of the Revolutionary War. And he keeps referring to Hamilton. He keeps calling him son, right? So he's like, uh, son, uh, this war is hard, right? Here's how we need to proceed. Son, uh, I'm the general, right? I, I can take care of things. Uh, son, don't be reckless or careless. I need you alive. And every time George Washington, who's like 20, 30 years, his senior. So it makes sense. Like he's looking at someone who is about the age of his son and he keeps calling him son. But every time he does, Alexander Hamilton gets more and more upset. And he's like, don't, I'm not your son. Don't call me son. And finally he like, you know, scre- he interrupts him and screams and says, like, don't call me your son because it's, it, he, he takes the word son as as an insult or at the very least as an implication that you, uh, you are above me. You stand in authority over me. You preside over me. I'm your son. I'm someone lower and, and beneath you. I was, uh, had a, a conversation about race years ago. Um, yeah, probably 10, 15 years ago. And it was a handful of, uh, of white guys, handful of uh, black guys. And we were just talking about uh, race and race relations and uh, we were we asked uh, we asked these guys what is the like what is the what's the most offensive term that you could be that you that a white person could call you like what's you know and um, and just kind of yeah thinking talking together and we expect I expected it to be like you know a terrible slur that you you know wouldn't like you know you're not allowed to say and one of the one of the African American brothers that was in the conversation said that the worst uh, thing that he could be called like the, the thing that's most offensive to him is to be called not any bad word but the word boy, like if if like uh, 
if a white guy were to, you know, say, hey, hey, boy, like, you know, bring me that, bring that over here, boy, or do that, like, you know, there's something like, there's, there's this connotation of, like, derision, but also like a, a, like a slavery-esque power dynamic, like, boy, like, I am the, you know, I own you, you have to do what I say, bring that over here, boy, do what you're told, boy, that kind of thing. And he said, that's the, that's the one that will make me more upset than any other thing that any, you know, with, with like any other racially charged thing someone could call me is the word boy, right? The father's in charge, the son or the boy is under his um, authority. And I think that's what's, that's what's kind of being gotten at here, right? Um, is the Christ David's son? Yes, if we're talking about the Christ is the long-awaited promised Messiah, Savior of his people, the Davidic King who will reign forever, is the Christ David's son in that he's lower and he, you know, he, he bows his knee to King David, right? David is his king. David is his master. David is his authority. David is more glorious and more splendid and more powerful than him. And Jesus says emphatically, no, if that's what you mean by the son of David, I'm not that. I am not David's son. I'm not lower than him. I don't bow my knee to David. David bows his knee to me. And then he opens up the Old Testament to kind of prove uh, that this is the case. Turns to Psalm 110 and he says, uh, if that's the case, then why does David say this? Why does David say, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies, your footstool. Psalm 110, in a nutshell, I'm just kind of run through it real quick. It's, this is the first verse. It starts with these two characters in view. The Lord, definite article, the, uh, says to my Lord, right? A possessive adjective, my. So they're two different people. Same word. It's kind of tough to, to tell the difference uh, in English but, but, uh, because it's the same English word, Lord. But it's two different people that are in view. And so David is having this vision. It's a dream. And he's, he's watching as, as the sovereign Lord, Yahweh, God, the Father, the, the one God of Israel, is interacting with this other person. This other person that David refers to as my Lord, right? He's a person that's in authority over me. He's a person that I call Lord. I bow my knee to him. He's more exalted. He's more glorious. And as the psalm unfolds, we see that the other person, right? The the person that David refers to as my Lord, uh, the Lord invites that person to come and sit at his right hand, to rule in sovereign power and authority on God's behalf. God kind of hands over all of his power and authority to this other person. This other person is worshipped by all of his people as God. This other person defeats every single rebel power that stands against him, uh, that, that reject his authority. This other person fills the entire earth with the, the remains, the corpses of the people that he has slain. This other person celebrates his victory with his people. And then for all of eternity, he lives with them. He rules over them as their priest and as their king forever and ever. That's what this other person does. So, so the Lord God says to this other person, sit in my right hand. And then those, all of those things happen. So whoever this guy is that, that, you know, that David says is my Lord, he is unequivocally God. Right? He is 
uh, the sovereign Lord of the universe. He acts as God. He rules as God. He judges as God. He saves His people as God. He lives with His people forever as God, as their Savior, Priest, King. Those are the characters that, that are, that are in, in view. God the Father, uh, the, the, the people of God, the enemies of God, and this guy, this Savior, Messiah, Priest, King who, uh, in one sense, seems to be under the authority of the Father because the Father is the one who's telling him what to do. Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. So this Messiah figure is under the authority of the Father. He's subordinate to the Father in some sense, but he's also a co-equal with the Father. He's co-eternal with the Father. He's of the same essence as the Father. He's of the same nature as the Father. He's been begotten and not made. He defeats the enemies of God for the Father. He rules over the people of God with the Father. So it's this, it's this weird, enigmatic, they're the same, but the, the Father is, is above the, this, this Messiah, but they're, but they're equal, but there's, there's a, a differentiation in, in relation. As we turn to the New Testament, this makes perfect sense because we see more insight into the doctrine of the Trinity. That there's one God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. They're three different people. So each of them are distinct from one another, but each of them are fully united together. One God, three persons, and then within this triune Godhead, there is a willing, voluntary subordination where the Son submits to the Father, the Holy Spirit submits to the Son and to the Father. And so, so in Psalm 110, we're seeing kind of the, the initial seeds are being planted for the doctrine of the Trinity that's going to come into clearer view in the New Testament. And so Jesus points to Psalm 110 and he says, he says, you know, I, I get it. I get it that the Messiah is the son of David in the sense that he is literally his, like David was born first, right? David, the Messiah is David's great, 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 great grandson. And David is the Messiah's great, 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 great grandfather. I get all of that. But. Uh, make no mistake, the Messiah is not the son of David in the sense that uh, David has more authority than him, more glory than him, more... Because according to Psalm 110, the Messiah is co-equal with the Father. He's co-eternal with the Father. He's given special tasks to accomplish from the Father. He's going to reign forever alongside the Father. He's going to receive worship like God the Father. That's all true of the Messiah. None of that is true of King David. King David's a person. He's a creature. The Messiah is God himself. So Jesus is saying, uh, you know, it, David doesn't say, the Lord, my God who I submit to and I look to, he says to my son, the guy who's going to come from my family tree eventually, the Lord says to, he's saying, the son of David that will be born uh, a, a great, great grandchild of mine is actually my Lord. He's over me. He's higher than me. I submit to him because he's more powerful, more glorious, and more supreme. It's exactly what, what Paul says in Romans chapter 1. He kind of finds this, um, you know, tension where Jesus is both the son of David, but also the Lord of David. He says Jesus was descended from David according to the flesh. He's the son of David. And Jesus was declared to be the son of God, in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. So he's, he's the, the Lord of David, the sovereign Lord God over David. They're both true. 
So David is this great hero to be sure. Right? He's the, the measuring stick for all of the other kings, but the Messiah is not just another king. The Messiah is in a, a category all to his own. He, he is uh, over top of David and all of the kings. David's entire, David's rule was not the, uh, the pinnacle of rule in Israel, and then the son of David was, a, was kind of a, a reflection of it. Quite the opposite. The Messiah's rule is the pinnacle of all divine uh, rulership in Israel. And David's rule as the best human earthly king is a reflection of the Messiah's rule. That's Psalm 110. That's the implication that Jesus is drawing out of it. The Messiah is God. The Messiah is the sovereign king. The Messiah is, is higher than everyone, even higher than David, who we all acknowledge is the best king that we've ever had. Now, why does this matter? Why is Jesus so concerned about whether, I mean, about this, this random, you know, how do we refer to David in this way or, or that? So, like I said, the, the, the Messiah is kind of the, David is seen as the, the best king we've ever had, the quintessential king of Israel. And, and the, the people of Israel kind of said, basically, after David, everything was down. I mean, you can read that in like First and Second Kings, First and Second Samuel, First and Second Chronicles. David is this great king. And after David, it goes downhill. A lot of the kings, they just say, he did not walk in the way of his father David. He did not trust in God. He did not take down the high places. He did not stop worshiping other... Like, uh, David was this like the quintessence of, of kingliness. And uh, there was this kind of downhill. Jesus is saying, I'm not that. And, and uh, perish the thought that David is the highest pinnacle that we can envision in our brains for a king for our people. Right? The Messiah is infinitely higher, infinitely better than David. Which, there, there's, there's, there's application for us here on this point, right? Just like the people in Israel had this tendency to look to David, uh, idealize David, you know, romanticize David, I, idolize, idolize David and make him into this great, this great person that was kind of a mythical hero. We have the same tendency, right, to... to Take people, places, things, ideologies, preferences, whatever it, you know, whatever it is that we uh, that we like or that we hold really tightly to or that we value or that that's the most important thing to us, and then we kind of elevate it above and beyond Jesus. Right? It could be parents, grandparents, pastor, favorite author, right? Founding father, television personality, right? So, uh, politics, like heroes from history, no matter who it is, right? The degree to which we take some created being, some created thing, and in our brains, in our minds, we elevate that thing, and that becomes the most important thing, right? And that, you know, Jesus is great, but this guy, this thing, this, uh, you know, belief system that I have, this political party that I affiliate with, right? The degree to which we take that and we say, that is the highest thing that there, that there is. Jesus is saying, remember your heroes, but don't worship your heroes, Right? Honor, remember the past, remember your traditions, but don't worship them. Don't cling to them so tightly. All of your heroes, all the people that you esteem so highly, 
were imperfect people, worthy of being remembered, but not worthy of being worshipped. Not worthy of being held in higher regard than, than Jesus. Right? All the memories of, of the things, that, the, the way that it used to be, how great it was, I want things to be like that again, all of those places, things, were in, they're worthy of being remembered, they're not worthy of being uh, worshipped. I read, read something a while ago. Um, there, there's, a, uh, there's a phenomenon in psychology called rosy retrospectionism, which is a tendency that human beings have for memories, memories to get distorted over time, right? Uh, we tend to remember people, places, things, events in the past with this rosy glow, like we remember them better than they actually were. Right? We'll remember people that we think highly of and we'll kind of, you know, romanticize them or think that they were this like mythic heroic status. And our memories will actually, our memories are more inclined to forget the bad things that we don't want to remember and remember the, uh, the, the example that, the, that this article talked about Rosie retrospectionism was they did a survey for people on vacation. And so they, you know, people go on a vacation for a week or two and every day they would like ask them on their phones or whatever, like, call them or something and you they would rate you'd have to rate on a scale of one to ten how happy are you right now and so you know you're waiting in line at the airport flights delayed stewardess tells you that the peanuts cost a hundred dollars you know you get to the hotel you know the bed has a you know the bed isn't as comfortable as your bed is at home you know, there's a, a million, th- right? Everything costs a bajillion dollars. You're grumpy the whole time. You're not sleeping well. The kids aren't sleeping. Everyone's mad. And so, so uh, you go on vacation. They ask every day, how happy are you right now? And they would collect the answers. And then you get home, you go back to work. You hate work, right? You wish you were on vacation again, right? They let a month go by. The dust settles. And then they ask the same people, how happy were you on this particular day of your vacation? And the answer, it was incredible. So uh, on the vacation, when they were on the vacation, the answer was one out of ten. Two, four, three, five, whatever. You know, everyone's like, this could be better. You know, we're in a decent hotel. We could be in a better one. But then a month later, it was like all tens and nines. Oh, vacation was awesome. I loved it. It was great. Because we have this rosy retrospectionism of something in the past that I like or that I want to convince myself that I liked. Uh, I, I'm going to, rem- I mean, we, uh, we're having our second kid. This, this is a thing with like pregnancy and childbirth. And like the first, you know, you, uh, when you like ask a woman who's like 35 weeks pregnant, if she likes pregnancy, right? If she like, you know, or a woman giving birth, if she likes labor and, and childbirth or ask parents of a one month old, you know, if they like sleepless nights and just exhaustion and all of the difficult things that come with with that but like a year or two later when it when you want to have more kids like we literally were like we can't like we don't all of that like we remember like we remember that we thought that that was hard but we don't remember that it was even all of the hard things about pregnancy and and like the first few months of, of you know raising a child we don't even we kind of have forgotten it and so it's like we kind of have this tendency to Remember things, uh, you know, in a romanticized, idealized way. That person, that place, that thing was perfect, right? You give it all of your attention, affection. If you're not careful, you'll start to 
think so highly of it, right, that it, it becomes more important or more idealized than who Jesus actually... You'll, you'll have no category for someone, you know, who loves Jesus but doesn't happen to, you know, agree with you about your preference for that particular thing, whether it's a, a memory or a, a person or an ideology or something like, like that. So, when we, when we start to inadvertently elevate people, places, things, memories, traditions, ideals, whatever, when we start to inadvertently elevate them above Jesus, it's going to work its way out into our lives, right? When we start to forget that, you know, whatever, like, the, the David, like, so if, if, these, if these religious leaders had, had tended to elevate David above Jesus, and we have a similar tendency to elevate someone or something above Jesus, the point of this text is that, like, that theological error that you're making, right, that deficient, defective Christology where you believe that Jesus is uh, this kind of anemic, small person that is subjugated beneath this other thing that you like more than him or that you are more impressed by than him, that's going to work itself out into your life and your behavior. Like the, you know, like the solar, like the solar system, right? The sun is, you know, there's eight planets all revolving around the sun. If you take the sun out of the solar system, all the planets just kind of fly off in any given direction because the sun was what was holding them in place. Your theology is what's holding your behavior and your life in place, right? Uh, defective theology, deficient theology, and your life kind of goes askew, kind of goes off track. So two ways that I want to consider how our behavior or our life might be affected by our Christology is that of humility and love of neighbor. So humility. You believe rightly about Jesus. You believe, right, unlike the Pharisee, unlike the religious leaders who kind of have this deficient theology, if you have a correct view of Jesus, he is sovereign, he is God, he is Lord, he is the King. I bow before him. He does not bow before me. That works itself out by making you humble, right? When you come into the, the living room of a peer or if you come into the office and your employees and your subordinates, there, there's a different posture that you take, a different vibe that you feel than if you walk into the throne room of a great king, right? If, you, if you're the boss, you walk in and your employees are on your phone, you're expecting them, put your phone away. I'm about to start talking, you know, listen to, like, listen to what I'm about to say. If you walk into the Oval Office and the President of the United States is on the phone, you're going to sit quietly until he, like, hangs up and, and acknowledges you, right? There's, there's, a, there's a different vibe, there's a different posture that you take around people that are important and, and high and glorious and, and sovereign, and they are above you. When you're around people that are, that are more glorious than you, more powerful than you, higher than you, you are humble. If you see Jesus as a peer, if you see Jesus as a subordinate, if you see Jesus as one of many kings, all of whom are kind of impressive, but none of whom really demand my utmost loyalty, then you're not going to be humble around Jesus. You're going to be prideful around Jesus. But if you see Jesus as the glorious king of the universe, then you're not going to walk around with your chest puffed out, 
with a sense of entitlement. You're not going to expect everyone to cater to you and to anticipate your needs and defer to your preferences and bow before you and make much of you and celebrate how awesome you are because you're not the king. Jesus is the, the king. The posture of a person who has a healthy biblical Christology is one of humility. Jesus is the king and I bow before him. Conversely, if you're prideful, arrogant, self-obsessed, self-exalting, it's all about me, everyone think about me, everyone listen to me, everyone do what I say, everyone bow before me, everyone give me the place of honor. If that's the heart, if that's the posture of your heart, then that's probably an indication that there's a deficient Christology somewhere in your belief system. You probably don't, whether you admit it or not, whether you realize it or not, you probably don't believe that Jesus is as sovereign and glorious as you really think he is if your heart is one of pride and self-exaltation. A healthy Christology will engender humility in our souls. That's one example. Another is uh, love of neighbor, right? If you, have a, if you have a healthy Christology, a high Christology, if you understand that Jesus is the sovereign king, the sovereign Lord, he's not your peer, he is your authority, you have to do what he says, then you will end up loving your neighbor because he told you to do that. Right? So if you have to do what he says, then he told in, in John 13, Jesus says, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. So if you see Jesus as the sovereign, supreme, glorious, majestic, authority, king over the universe who has divine right over your life and can tell you what to do and you're obligated to obey him, when you see Jesus that way, you're invariably going to love your neighbor because he told you to and he has authority over you. If you have a biblical Christology, and if you see Jesus rightly, you'll love your neighbor. You'll look out for them. You'll anticipate their needs. You'll care about them. You won't be easily offended when you're around them. You'll be quick to overlook an offense. You'll forgive them. If they sin against you, you'll, uh, if you sin against them, you'll repent there's an issue, you'll communicate and reconcile, you'll love them, you'll treat them how you would want to be treated because Jesus has commanded you to love your neighbor. Jesus is an authority over you and you have an obligation to obey him. And conversely, if you don't love your neighbor, if you're actively refusing to treat your neighbor the way that you would want to be treated, then that perhaps is an indication that you have a deficient Christology somewhere in your heart. That you don't really know or care who Jesus is. If you think you don't have to love your neighbor, it's your prerogative whether you love your neighbor or not, despite the fact that Jesus called you to, then that might be an indication that you don't recognize Jesus' authority in your life. A healthy Christology will cause you to love your neighbor. And a stubborn refusal to love your neighbor is like a litmus test that might show that you don't have a high view of Jesus. So, two examples. How Christology affects your life. Humility and love of neighbor. Let's look at the next couple of verses. Look at how the, uh, the scribes and the religious leaders approach the, the topics of humility and loving their neighbor. And hearing this, uh, Jesus said, beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes, 
love greetings in the marketplaces. They love the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at the, the feasts, right? And they, they uh, you know, make these long prayers so that everyone can see them and think very highly of them. While at the same time, they are devouring widows' houses. They will receive the greater condemnation. So these religious leaders are all about self, all about exaltation of self, all about pomp and circumstance, right? Walking around with a, you know, a, a long a robe 20 feet flowing behind them like they bought it out of a bride magazine or something. Right? And they want to be greeted and everyone has to kiss the ring. And when they walk in, they expect the red carpet to be rolled out for them so that they can sit in the best seats and have everyone, here you go, sir, right away, sir. And he's like, we're so glad to have you uh, grace us with your presence, sir. That's how these religious leaders acted. And it was the most ridiculous thing in the world. Because they cared more about impressing people that were around them than they cared about uh, being humble before the God who made them. They have a deficient Christology, a low view of Jesus, and the result is that they're prideful and arrogant and self-exalting. And not only that, but they also devour widows' houses. So, so poor widows living in poverty, vulnerable, under-resourced, Husband has died. Support system has dried up. No income. No money. And these corrupt religious leaders would steal it from them. Right? They'd take it from imminent domain or they'd tell her that she's going to go to hell unless she mortgages her house and gives the the money to, to them for some religious emblem or something like that. Right? This poor elderly widow is put out onto the street, lives in poverty so that this rich, corrupt religious leader can increase his net worth by a fraction of a percentage. Right? He can go up from $10 $10 million to $10.1 million while this widow goes from having a house to being homeless. Prideful, self-exalting, self-obsessed, and they don't love their neighbor. They exploit their neighbor for personal gain. That's what happens if you have a deficient Christology. That's what happens if you don't understand Jesus to be the sovereign authority who uh, is the the God and King over your life. If you if you view Jesus as small and puny, uh, a peer or a subordinate, who doesn't even have as much authority as David had, certainly he doesn't have any authority over you. You have no obligation to obey him at all. Then you'll end up living like that. You'll be prideful and arrogant, and you won't love your neighbor. You'll take advantage of them and use them and chew them up and spit them out. If you have a low view of Jesus. If you have a high view of Jesus, right? If Jesus looms large in your mind, in your soul, if you believe that He's the King, He's sovereign, He has all power, all authority, He came to you despite the fact that He did not have to. He died for you to pay the penalty for your sins. He secured your salvation and gave it to you freely by grace. If you have a high and exalted and elevated view of Jesus, then you'll be humble. You'll think of yourself less and less. You won't be worried about what everyone else thinks of you and whether, whether or not they gave you the honor that you think that they deserve because you'll understand that all honor rightly belongs to Jesus. You won't be worried about impressing people 
because you'll be too impressed by Jesus to care about impressing others. You'll love your neighbor because Jesus told you to. And you'll be so overcome by the radical love that Jesus extended to you, despite your not deserving it, that you will happily, gladly, willingly extend love to others regardless of whether they deserve it or not. If you have a high view of Jesus... If you remember that he's the sovereign, he's higher than David, he's the sovereign Lord, he's higher than any of your heroes, he's higher than you, he rules the universe, he is sovereign, supreme, glorious, and if you have a high view of Jesus, then your life will fall into place and you will invariably behold his glory and be humble, and you will receive his love and, and love your neighbor. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we pray that you would help us to see you as you truly are. As the sovereign king, as our Lord and God, as our priest and king, our savior, our Messiah. Lord, we repent of the places in our lives where we have been like these religious leaders and had a deficient view of you where it's caused us to be prideful and arrogant, where it's caused us to sin against others instead of loving them. Lord, we pray that you would help us to see you rightly in your glory. As we do, we pray that you would help us to respond with humility and with love. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.